Welcome to Eurodal University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the European sovereign debt crisis. Is it happening again? Are we talking about 2011, 2012, or is it happening again? There are some indications. Maybe it is. Jeff, you wrote a essay for Real Clear Markets. You write one there every week as well as a business column at Epic Times. And you write somewhere else with Steve Van Meter. We're going to talk about that later, where people can get more of your writings. But this article in question is, whose interests do central bankers and economists serve? And it was posted on the 12th of August, 2022. The first half of the article we just discussed with Steve and Van Meter, and it was a discussion of um, narrative expectations policy, the Federal Reserve, and the New York Times opinion column. So audience, check that out. But now we're going to segue towards more meaty, exciting discussions about the European sovereign debt crisis of yore, and that maybe it's happening again. And the most interesting part of the article I love, Jeff, was I learned that Italian sovereign bonds serve as the plurality of repo collateral in the European repo system which sounds distressing. Jeff, tell us, what is the audience going to get away from this article? Well, Emil, I thought maybe we should bring in Macro Elf for this, but, you know, unfortunately, he's a busy guy and we couldn't get him on here because, I mean, that would have been perfect. And I think the big headline here, and Alf and I, you know, and, and you and I and Alf had talked about before, is that this isn't really about sovereign debt so much as it is about repo and collateral. I know, I know, every, we can make everything seem about repo and collateral and it's not even just repo, but, you know, what we're trying to do here is to get people to connect some dots that they may not necessarily connect. For example, what does Greek government bonds have to do with a flash crash on Wall Street, for example? And there's a way to get there. And the way to get there is through looking at these funding mechanisms and how these how the plumbing actually works. And so that's kind of our point here is that we're seeing things that we've seen before happen again. And the reason we see these things that happen before happen again is because nobody ever learns the first time we go through them. As the man said, uh, what is the quote, uh, who, who doesn't pay attention to history is doomed to repeat it, something like that. Or I forget who had said it and how it actually. George Santayana. Yes, that's it. So we keep repeating history because nobody ever pays attention to what happens the first time. Instead, we're told it's all about subprime mortgages or something, or QE is the best thing ever if it's money printing and liquidity. So we can't possibly have repeating liquidity crisis. Well, my similar quote, I'm paraphrasing, my favorite take on that quote was by another George, George Friedman, the geopolitical analyst who says, we're doomed to repeat history no matter what. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it's just nice to know what happened before as you're going through it again. Okay. So we could all empathize with our predecessors who sweated under the same environments. I kind of think that's a little too fatalistic. I'd like to I'd like to see at least some more recognition and a little more optimism. Yes, human beings do the same things, but, you know, there is things there is much that we can learn from our mistakes. Well, if you know, George, he is an absolute teddy bear and he says this with a wry grin. So. It's not fatalistic. It's just, it's uh, gallows humor. It's just my interpretation of it. Gallows <laughs> I'm humor. fatalistic, not George. <laughs> okay, okay. So you said, Jeff, and we have a big American audience. 
I believe 50% of our viewership is American. So they're thinking, why should we listen to what's happening in Europe? Because back then, what, because it's all part of the same system and it flows back and forth and trouble over there will come to trouble over in the United States, just as it did in May of 2010, Jeff, you write here that on May 3rd, 2010, the European Central Bank voted to, quote, suspend the application of the minimum credit rating threshold in the collateral eligibility requirements for the purposes of the euro system's credit operations, at least for Greek bonds. Because what was happening at the time? They were running away and they said, the European Central Bank said, you know what? We've got to keep this political union together, the monetary union together. We're going to suspend this rule about credit quality and just buy to make sure we keep those yields down. Fair enough. A few days later. Yeah, Emil, that wasn't actually the case. I mean, I think that's the, the, the message the public got, but that's not okay. actually what happened. It was even worse than all that because go back a couple, not even a year earlier. Let's go back to the sovereign debt crisis, not the sovereign excuse me, the global financial crisis, which wasn't really a financial crisis. It was a global monetary crisis. And it had different aspects to it. But by and large, the 2007, 2008, 2009 panic was about a shortage of collateral. So we had all these private mortgage bonds that were used, not just in the U.S. I mean, we talked about it last week with the anniversary of August 9th, 2007. You had European money market funds that were heavily invested in U.S. ABS products, and they were using them in repo, lending them out as collateral, all sorts of stuff that was going on. And as the crisis developed, nobody could use mortgage bonds. They couldn't use ABS, at least not in the way they had before the crisis. So what do you do? If you're a European bank or you're a European financial counterparty, I can't use mortgage bonds or ABS in the same way in repo as I could before. I'll start using sovereign bonds. Let's well, give me some Italians. Give me some Irish. Give me some Portuguese because they're sovereign bonds. They're not ABS. They're not NBS. So I'm going to use a bunch of Greek debt, for example, in repo as collateral. Except when you get to the end of 2009, a lot of people started to question, hey, this Great Recession thingy, that's not going to be good in Greece. That's not going to be good in Portugal, Spain, and Italy. It's going to hamper some, Dubai. it's going to create some problems, right? So we went from out of the frying pan and into the fire when a lot of European financial institutions, which by the way, they're not just European financial institutions. They are euro dollar financial institutions. They had costly and very costly gotten rid of their ABS and MBS collateral and started using Italian, Greek, Portuguese, Spanish collateral. And then not even a year later, oh, by the way, we don't want your Greek collateral anymore. This is the repo market. The repo market saying, okay, we, we rejected MBS. Now we're going to start rejecting your Greek stuff because Greece looks really in bad shape given this great recession. So prices on Greek bonds start to fall. Liquidity in the Greek government market starts to get really dicey. Suddenly you're, you're stuck with Greek bonds that you can't use in repo markets. What do you do? Well, the ECB says, well, you know, Greek has been down, Greek bonds have been downgraded, but we'll still accept your collateral at our window. We're not buying it just yet. We're going to at least let you fund your Greek positions or other positions using Greek collateral at our window. So that's what happened on May 3rd. May 3rd was the ECB very belatedly saying there's a problem in collateral and we're going to try to fix it by reducing the eligibility requirements at our window. 11 months later, in April 2011, Eurodollar number two really began to take off. It was 
Was it undeniable? No, but the, sig- the green flag was down for sure. But just three days later, from May 3rd, was May 6th, Thursday, American stocks had a flash crash, a thousand points, if memory serves me right, in seconds, minutes. What happened, Jeff? Do we know? Do we bl- What was someone blamed? What is ever tied to anything happening in Europe? Yeah, just like, you know, anytime we see these market anomalies, I'm thinking of October 15, 2014, the flash crash in Treasury. It's always blamed on computer tradings or some kind of market quirk or some some advancement that we don't or innovation we don't we don't really fully understand. But in it just from a very basic sense, what happened in, in May 6 of 2010 was Wall Street hit an air pocket. And the reason it hit an air pocket was because of concerns, lack of liquidity in the global monetary system. The ECB on May 3rd wasn't fixing a problem. They were essentially televising that there had been such a massive problem, the ECB was thinking it needed to get involved. And what did that do to markets all over the world? Because the monetary system was experiencing severe disruption, so severe the ECB had to actually change the rules of its eligibility, its its window eligibility. And so the flash crash of May 6th wasn't just a random coincidence, nor was it simply computer training. That might have been the problem. But the fact that the monetary system and money supply generally had been in such disarray. And let's for, let's let's also remember this is just not even a year after the end of the Great Recession, the global financial crisis. Here we are experiencing the same types of problems. Maybe the public wasn't aware that these were the same types of problems, but you better believe that all those euro dollar banks in Europe and everywhere else understood that this was number two. This was the same thing happening over uh, same thing happening again, which made it that much more difficult for to get beyond it simply because when you understand how it actually works and that at the end of the day, you're going to depend upon central bankers to try to fix it when they really can't, it becomes a completely different story. The European sovereign debt crisis would begin, or euro dollar number two, I suppose, would begin in April by August. August 11th, is it, Jeff, when the FOMC met, so an anniversary 11 years ago, uh, the FOMC met, and I don't quite understand what they meant, but they were discussing in August 2011 about bailing out the repo market. I'm not sure what they meant, but my favorite part of that transcript is that, uh, oh, what was it? Mr. Sachs? Was it Jeffrey's? No, not Jeffrey Brian. Sachs, but Sa- Brian Sachs uh, was presenting and made it a point not once but twice to remind everyone how much liquidity there was in the system, and yet we're having another liquidity crisis. That was my favorite part. 1.6 trillion. Yeah, we got 1.6 trillion in bank reserves, which is more. I mean, it's it's bananas. It's Twenty bananas. times more than they ever yes. had in history at any point. Yes, and they're talking about bailing out the repo market because something is going wrong in in terms of money. I mean, they were talking about doing TAF auctions. They were talking about doing all the same crisis liquidity stuff that they that didn't work, but that they had come up with in the first financial crisis. And here they are in 2011, thinking that everything should be solved. There's two QEs in the book. All these bank reserves, all these problems in Europe that didn't seem to be just about Europe. It was spilling, as to use Ben Bernanke's term, it was spilling over into U.S. markets. Well, it wasn't spilling over at all. It was U.S. markets. There is no European market. There is no American market. There is only this global monetary system that links everything together. So it wasn't, you know, bank reserves, that kind of, the, the Fed was just out to lunch because 
again, we're stuck with the same system because nobody really learns from what happens the first time. Sovereign bonds for Portugal, maybe Ireland, I don't remember, but Italy, Greece, Spain began to accelerate upwards throughout that year and into 2012. And I believe they didn't stop until Mario Draghi held his press conference in June or July. July. I think it was July July 24th or 25th of 2012. 2012. And he said that he would do whatever it takes. Bond yields turned around. The worst of it was over. It wasn't over, but it seemed as if the crisis had passed. Jeff, we bring all this up because something similar. And of course, I want you to comment on what you disagree with there and what happened in um, 2012. But we bring all this up because something similar has happened again this year. And the question is, will the ECB be able to pull off the same magic trick? I want to talk about what's happened recently, but do you want to say anything before we put away uh, the European sovereign debt crisis part one and Mario Draghi? Well, it's clear that the Draghi's promise, his infamous promise in 2012, had an effect on sovereign debt on sovereign debt because that was sort of the peak in their in their yield. But it's not like they magically normalized from there. It took a quite a long process for the, for the markets to, to start to heal. And by then, the damage was already done in the monetary system because that's why Europe fell into such a severe recession. And the people don't realize this. The United States part of the global economy very narrowly avoided one itself. And it could be argued that maybe we experienced a mild recession. I would certainly I would, I would encourage economists to yeah. go back and look at that time and say, hey, maybe we did find it. Anyway, the, mo- the monetary damage should be done as soon as things happened in 2011, when you know you had the, the initial rumbles of crisis in 2010, just like 20, 2006 and 2007. You had the main event in 2011 and then the fallout by 2012. So by the time the ECB acted, the cake had already been baked. And so the economic consequences were already felt. The monetary system had already experienced its spasm and the inevitable fallout with what actually happened. Is Christine Lagarde a better looking Mario Draghi? Because she recently said we'll do whatever it takes using much more cryptic language and sovereign bond yields turned around. Let's tell the audience what happened. So from about September 2019, all the way through December 2021, European sovereign bonds were in the same range. Yes, obviously, there was a big crisis in between, recession, slowdown, up and down, everything. But they were roughly unchanged, effectively, if you look at a nice, big, long picture of, those, of that time period. Then, at the end of December 2021, early January 2022, they began to accelerate upwards, and they continued to do so until June 2022, when Lagarde came out and gave some cryptic remarks, which we'll go over. But Jeff, first question to you. They were flat all throughout, and then all of a sudden they began to accelerate upwards. Why did this European sovereign debt crisis or bond yield crisis, what what was happening? Why were these yields shooting higher so high that in the middle of June, the ECB had to come out and wave its hands and say everything will be taken care of? Well, there's actually two things going on here. The one is global rate hike panic. You know, the Fed isn't the only one that's going to be hiking. The only one that was hiking rates. There's central banks all around the world have been hiking rates because they've all they've all gone into an inflation panic. 
And that also affected the ECB to a certain extent, too. All the ECB up until recently had been more pragmatic about everything, far more cautious, having been burnt so many times in the past, especially Mario Draghi handing off to Christine Lagarde in 2019. That did not go smoothly at all because of the same problems of over, over being overly optimistic about inflation and the economy. But in 2022, you had, for example, the German bond market start to fall, sell off in German bonds, which meant interest rates rose, yields there rose rather precipitously from very negative levels to suddenly positive levels because markets were anticipating the ECB becoming more aggressive. And so the underlying German risk-free sort of benchmark then repriced all the other sovereign bonds around Europe. But that wasn't the only thing that happened. Because not only did you have the risk-free or the baseline price benchmark prices or benchmark yields going up, you also had a bit of fear. You had a bit of uncertainty that was embedded into some of these same uh, sovereign bonds that we talked about before in 2010 and 2011, Italian in particular, where the yields on Italian bonds rose much, 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 much faster than their counterparts in Germany, which meant that the markets were perceiving heightened risks associated with Italy. Now, we can talk about why that is. And I think it's mostly about if the European economy experiences recession, global recession, we get into a global recession this year, just like 2010 and 2011, that's probably going to be a big problem for countries like Italy and Greece and some of the other uh, well-known names. Because like 2010, shortly after the Great Recession, we had a recession in 2020. We didn't really recover from it in 2021, but prices made it seem like we did. And now if we have another recession after not having recovered from the last recession, this starts to sound really familiar, doesn't it? It starts to sound like 2010 and 2011 all over again. And what happened? The weaker credits stand out. And so the market begins to reprice some of these more questionable bonds, even if they're sovereign issuers. So Italian debt, the yields on those have risen precipitously and the spread over German, their German counterparts has blown way out. I think by the time we got to the middle of June, it was about 250 basis points, which is an enormous spread. And it's the market saying there's bad things going on here. And it becomes a self-reinforcing problem as it did in 2020 or 2010 and 2011. When we think about these things, not as just a reflection of their underlying credit characteristics of the governments issuing them, but also how they're used as collateral in repo market. I wonder why, why other countries weren't in the spotlight. Why wasn't Spain or Portugal in as much as the spotlight as Italy? I suppose because Italy is much bigger. But we're also going to learn that perhaps because they account for so much of repo collateral. Jeff, in your article, you tell us that. Right now in Europe, according to ICMA, which is the European arbiter, overseer of the repo market, they have a fantastic FAQ, ladies and gentlemen, on the repo market over there. Whenever people ask me to learn more about the repo market, I always send them to the ICMA FAQ on repo. It's fantastic. Anyways, here you say Italian government securities expanded from 21.3% of trading in December 2005 to 426 in December 2021 via a peak of 44.5% in December 2015. Meanwhile, in the same time frame, German bonds had been 44.6% of repo 
repo back in 05, but are just 13.8% by June of last year. Jeff, why? Why? That's unbelievable. And it sounds like the market likes Italian bonds more than Germans, but that's just not the case. Mm -mm. Those pesky Germans don't want to issue a lot of debt. That's the reason why German bonds and German, German uh, in French too, why their bonds have been so negative yielding for so long is that the, the, there's just not enough of them. Just like there's not enough. And we say there's not enough U.S. treasuries. People think you're crazy because the U.S. Treasury is absolutely going insane issuing debt. So even if the U.S. Treasury, which has gone completely crazy issuing debt, and there's still a shortage of treasuries. You can imagine what it's, what the case is going to be in Germany, where they don't want to issue debt. They hate issuing treasure or they hate issuing buns, bobles, shotses, and all those crazy names for they have for their for their instruments. And so that accounts for the fact that even though German debt is the prize of euro dominate euro denominated repo markets, there's just not enough of it to go around, especially considering how important repo has become. Collateralized securities, uh, secured financing transactions, collateralized transactions, not just in repo, but also derivatives. So the market simply has to make do with what's available. And what's available is Italian bonds. Italians have not been very careful about issuing government debt because why would they be? The, Italy's finances are a mess. Italy is in rough shape, but the market seems to like their government bonds. The market seems to price their government bonds at a favorable rate so that they can issue as much debt as they want. But is that because the market really likes it, it, what Italy's doing? Or is the market saying, we need this stuff so that we can do our money stuff? That's really it's what the it's most been. liquid. It's the most liquid. It's the third largest market in foreign and sovereign debt, if I remember correctly. Right, Jeff? It's U.S., Japan, and then Italy. Yeah, and then not it, Germany, not France, not Britain. And if you believe the ECB is standing behind Italian debt, then hey, it's like MBS before the crisis, right? It's we can look at these things, even though we know the credit quality is 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 not really good, but you know the, there's an implicit guarantee there. So for most of the time, let's let's just use Italian government debt and, and just pretend like it won't be a problem, and then we'll all be shocked when it becomes a problem. Let's talk about the ECB after I mention that perhaps the market also senses a political change because Italy is having an election next year, July. And right now the polling has right nationalist anti-Euro parties at just under 50%. So maybe they're worried that should they come into power, they'll tell the ECB and the European Commission to go stuff themselves unless they get some favorable treatment. The ECB, meanwhile, mentioned earlier that bond yields in Europe stopped accelerating higher in middle of June. At that time, Miss Christine Lagarde came out and said that they have developed a new tool, an anti-fragmentation tool. And if you go to Investopedia and look up what an anti-fragmentation tool is, you'll see nothing, nothing. No one knows what it is. She also said that she's against and she will not let finance dominate. Is that what we're, fiscal finance dominance take place? Again, go to Investopedia, look that up. You'll find nothing because she again made it up. What are these things? We don't know. So I say it's a bluff, Jeff. I say, here's my theory, finance dominance. Anyways, yields turned down after that. Finance dominance, I think, is her way of saying we're not going to let markets tell us what yield should be. We don't care for your market-determined yields. 
when determining political decisions about keeping the monetary union together. And then her anti-fragmentation tool, I think, may be that they were thinking about selling, keeping their balance sheet about the same, but selling German debt to buy more Italian debt. I don't know if that's the case, but we were talking about the, about the Germans earlier and how their Italian debt is backed by the ECB and maybe implicitly by Germany. Well, that was the middle of June. In early July, the head, the president of the Bundesbank, Joachim Nagel, came out and he said that he doesn't quite care for this anti-fragmentation <laughs> policy about Germans footing the bill and the ECB buying more debt from a certain country while selling others going outside of parameters they've already established. I mean, it sounds so familiar, doesn't it? I mean, we've, it's like we're, it's like we got in a time capsule set to, to, to timer back 12 years or 11 years. And we went back to 2011 again. We've had all these same discussions, the North South divide, all these other things, because nothing has really been fixed here. And I, I think you're right, Emil. Lagarde is bluffing. I think it's actually a double bluff. And the double bluff is that she doesn't want people to realize what's really going on here. So let's, let's make this about markets being political rather than what it actually is, markets being monetary. Markets are segregating different bonds because, let's face it, the Italian bonds went into a sell-off that was much steeper than the Germans, not because of politics, but because of the economics, small e economics of repo and collateral. And we know what happens when repo collateral starts to get repriced and rejected. That leads to all sorts, at least the death spiral, right? It leads to what we saw in 2011, when repo collateral suddenly becomes unappealing to repo market participants. Everybody gets rid of it because it's no longer usable. You can't stay in fund. You can't fund your portfolio. You can't get leveraged in the way that you need to get leveraged. So you got to get rid of it. You get into these fire sale, uh, fire sale sort of um, situations where. Prices just continue to fall regardless of the credit fundamentals or anything else. And then the liquidity suffers and it becomes a self-reinforcing thing. So I think Lagarde doesn't want people to realize what's actually going on here, which is more about repo and collateral than it is specifically about certainly politics. That's not really the issue here. Um, there are some political issues about, you know, maybe Italy should get its house in order. And maybe that's part of the issue why the <laughs> perception of Italian debt is, is so poor. But it doesn't change the fact that the market has depended, the global monetary system, not just the European system, but the global monetary system has depended in very big part on this Italian debt market to be good collateral. And now we have a big chunk of the world supply of collateral being repriced. And what does that do usually? When we have risky collateral that gets repriced, everybody, not only do they get rid of the bad collateral, they have to go buy the good collateral. So what did we see happen? Treasury bills. What did we see happen? German shotses. The prices of those things shot through the roof, which is why not just in, from the middle of June, or early June on, you saw German yields fall precipitously. It wasn't Lagarde that was buying, you know, what was she selling Germans and buying Italian anti-frag? No, that wasn't the issue. It's that people were getting out of Italian because they were they were becoming much harder to use in repo and buying German or buying U.S. treasuries and converting dollars to euros through the euro dollar system. That's why we've seen that massive collateral shortage that happened. And then, of course, the market sell offs that all took place at the same time from the middle of June.
it's going to be interesting to see what happens because I don't believe in 2012 that somebody in Germany said, well, we're not going to toe the line with you, ECB. I believe that they tried to support what was taking place so that the crisis wouldn't continue. But here we have the head of the Bundesbank telling everyone that the ECB is bluffing and they don't support this uh, anti-fragmentation tool. So we'll see. So right now the yields are down. The crisis the may are still high. That's I think the key here is yes, the yields off came the down. High there. They're, yeah, yeah, so, they're down off the the where they were in mid June. Yeah, so in mid June of the Italian spread, the ten year spread, the Italian ten versus the German ten was about two hundred fifty basis points. As of last check, I saw yesterday it was like two hundred and eight. So yields have come down because German yields came down, and then the spreads narrowed a bit. But not really all that much. So 208 basis points is still an enormous spread on Italian bonds. And we'll see what happens. 